Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin an exciting new series in 2 Peter. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, a series entitled Danger from Within. So let's join Dr. Newfeld as he brings us a message titled The Gift of Spiritual Maturity. In his wonderful hymn about the church, entitled The Church's One Foundation, author Samuel Stone in verses 3 and 4 wonderfully characterizes the two great dangers to the church. In verse 3, speaking about persecution, Stone writes, Though there be those who hate her and strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor she ever will prevail. You know, in that verse, Stone wanted to highlight the traitor, yeah, but also the foe, the persecutor, the one who had the power to harm the church and wanted to see the church crushed. And then comes verse 4, which Stone addresses the second great threat to the church. He says, Though with a scornful wonder, the world sees her oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saint their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. You know, it's hard to say which is the biggest threat of the church. Is it the danger from without or is it the danger from within? First Peter is a book that discusses the danger from without and the kind of an attitude and behavior that God demands of all Christians when they're facing persecution. And that's because Peter knew that not only did the church face grave dangers from without, but her response to those dangers, that was what was imperative. Respond badly and the enemy wins the day. But 2 Peter, which is the subject of our study now, is about the dangers from within, the heresies that threaten to drown out the gospel and render the church ineffective. And here, even as in 1 Peter, Peter also knows that the response to those dangers is also imperative. Respond badly and the enemy wins the day. So I'm embarking on a new series, 2 Peter. 2 Peter is a small three-chapter book near the end of our New Testament. You know, in writing this very short book, Peter realizes that the end of his life is near, and as the apostolic era is coming to an end, Peter realizes that the great fight before the church when he departs, and also the other apostles of our Lord have also departed, well, this is now the fight for what the church actually believes. But the church is never simply about what she believes. It's also about spiritual maturity, moral character of those who believe. It's about spiritual growth, for what we believe and who we are are inseparably related. So to be clear, this series on 2 Peter is about countering the danger of false teaching. And that brings me to a central point. In our day, where values like inclusion and diversity are considered central to our culture, the idea of truth and error seems like hopelessly outdated concepts. So let's be clear. There's a lot to celebrate when we talk about inclusion and diversity. And here I'm referring to the importance of recognizing the value of each person, regardless of their race or ethnic background. Christians should be championing that. But to do so and then think that those values should also be true about Christian doctrine, well, that's sheer madness. That's because Christians need to be on guard against inclusion of false teaching and of those who do it. And so as we read through this very short letter, let's consider its contents. And as we do, you might find yourself surprised by how roughly Peter treats false teachers along with false doctrines. He's not arguing for sensitivity to false teachers, rather to their exclusion from the Christian community. 
Indeed, the later writings of the New Testament have much to say about this danger. So that's the warning that we're going to find as we study 2 Peter. But before I launch right into the book, let me also say 2 Peter, well, it has a history of being accused of something well, that's very bad. See, a great many scholars today claim this book is a fake, it's a fraud. And they do that for a number of reasons. Well, first, many claim that the book had difficulty being accepted as legitimate right from the start. But that objection shouldn't alarm us at all. It only tells us that every single book of the New Testament was put through a legitimacy test to make sure that it wasn't a fraud. I mean, the very fact that 2 Peter was accepted tells us that the book did pass an arduous test, that it was indeed from the pen of Peter, the apostle of our Lord. Now, second, others object because they argue that the style of writing of 2 Peter is a very different style than that of 1 Peter. 1 Peter seems refined, 2 Peter feels raw, rough, less polished. But here again, that should hardly alarm us. I mean, ask the same scholars to compare two of C.S. Lewis' books. And here I would put before them first, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and ask them to compare that with the book, The Four Loves. You know, the first is a children's book. The language is simple, it's easily consumed by kids. And the, the second is the language of a scholar. You see, to argue that writers can't change their styles, that's untrue. They do it all the time. And so without going into all the nuances of the debate, there's every reason to believe that 2 Peter is authentic and very little reason to believe that it's not. It is in our Bible because it is from the pen of Peter himself. You know, a third reason for doubting First and Second Peter is because, well, it's so it's argued, that Peter was a mere fisherman and there's no way he'd be able to write as he did. Others argue that he was probably illiterate. Well, now, those arguments are to the most part based on ignorance of ancient Jewish culture because the synagogue system, almost all Jewish boys could read and write. And also, Peter attended the best university in human history. He was directly mentored by Jesus, the Lord of the universe, and the wisdom of God. It was a three-year intensive that made the best trained man of his day. Badly educated, indeed. That argument could only be sustained if you doubt his teacher. See, one more question before we begin. When did Peter write this letter, and to whom did he write it? It's undoubtedly true that 2 Peter was written shortly after 1 Peter, Peter is still in Rome. He's writing to the churches. According to 1 Peter, they're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these are churches that were in what is now known as the nation of Turkey. He's writing to a great many churches in a region with the intent that his letter would be taken to church after church, to everyone in the region, and each church would hear the letter read. Well, when did Peter write 2 Peter? So I'd assume it was written somewhere between AD 64 and 65. You know, in a very short period after this letter was written, Peter would be executed in Rome, being crucified upside down. This is Peter's letter in which he is certain that the day of his death is nigh. He's concerned about the prevalence of false teachers in the church. So let's just jump right in, starting with the introduction to the letter. 2 Peter 1, 1 1-2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So Peter begins by identifying himself. He's Simon Peter. In First Peter, he simply calls himself Peter, 
But here he adds the name Simon or Simeon. You know, the name Simon Peter comes up frequently in John's gospel, where Peter's referred to as Simon Peter 17 times. So let's be clear. Simon, that was his given name. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. To call him Simon Peter, as John does, is to say that Simon, the man who is called Peter by Jesus, who also, in giving him that name, Peter, appointed him to a central role of leadership among the apostles. Now, this Simon, appointed leader of the apostolic team. So why then does Peter call himself Simon Peter? I think it's a humble reference to himself. Yeah, I'm an apostle. I'm appointed into leadership by Jesus, but I remember that I'm Simon. I am the humble fisherman from Galilee. And then Peter is quick to add that those who are receiving his letter have a faith of equal standing to his and to the other apostles. Now, that doesn't mean that Peter's relinquishing his leadership in the church. He is not. You know, a faith of equal standing means that all those who are in Christ have equal privileges before God. Things like forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with a father, eternal hope. God provides differing roles to differing believers, but they're standing before God. That's equal. And then Peter adds the words, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is, these privileges that we have before God, this equal standing that all believers share, that was procured by Jesus and his perfect righteousness. Notice also that Peter calls Jesus not only our Savior. Listen, he calls him also our God. Any doubt about the deity of Christ is erased in the first line of the book. And then as is customary in all New Testament letters, Peter then adds a greeting. Grace, he says, that's a reference to the gospel. Grace, undeserved favor. The blessing and forgiveness and reconciliation of God is what I remind you of. We've not earned or deserved this. We've received it. It's the gospel. And then peace, peace with God and with one another. Peter says, not only are these your portion in Jesus, but may this be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He means, may you grow in knowing how great is your portion of grace and peace. You know, there's certain sensitive topics some of us tend to avoid discussing, even with our loved ones. Money is definitely one of those. But since the Bible certainly does not shy away from discussing the matter of money, then neither should we. That's why we're so excited to share with you our newest resource called 10 Questions About Money Matters. It's a short booklet based on Dr. John's audio series, God and Money and it will help you address financial issues from a biblical perspective. We're confident this resource will provide financial guidance, helping us to become better stewards of the resources that God has graced us with. We're thrilled to offer you this booklet for free for the whole month of August. To request your copy or to offer a gift to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Having greeted his readers, Peter now gets busy. He wants his readers to be spiritually mature as they approach the coming storm of false teachers. And so as we now read verses 3 and 4, let's also remember that what Peter writes here is not just good for his readers in the first century. It's invaluable for us as well. You want to grow in spiritual maturity, and most of us, I think, are going to say, yes, of course, 
as a Christian, I'm not content to remain in immaturity. I want to grow up. So then, what is the pathway of becoming spiritually mature? So verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I know that's a difficult sentence, but we're going to make it easy to understand if we follow it through one point at a time. Here's point one. Those who know God through grace and peace provided by Christ already have everything they need. I know that for many of us, that sounds strange. I mean, many of us today have been brought up to believe that believing in Jesus is not enough. Oh, yeah. They've been taught that, you know, believing in Jesus is the pathway, you know, to forgiveness of sins, but it's not enough to growing in our faith. See, something we believe has to be added, we think. And there have been those in the past that speak of an additional spiritual experience that you're going to need in order to become spiritually mature. And so given that we have this nagging sense that somewhere, something, there's something missing. And Peter says, you know, we need to embrace something. See, Peter's trying to convince us from the start. He starts his sentence with the words, his divine power. The first thing we need to do here is try to understand when Peter uses the word his Is he referring to God the Father or is he referring to Jesus the Lord? And we can't say with certainty because, you know, in the last verse, Peter has spoken about the knowledge of God, meaning the Father, and then he adds the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. I hope you see this. You know, Peter might mean either the divine power of the Father or the divine power of the Lord, that is Jesus. But in either case, I don't think it matters. See, the point has to remain that both the Father and the Son have the same divine power. That means both have the power of the Godhead. That means that Peter begins by speaking about the inexhaustible power of God or of the Godhead, a power that knows no limits at all. Now, for our purposes, I tend to think that Peter is here referring to the power of Jesus, our Lord, who has brought us grace and peace. Well, very well. This power that only the Trinitarian God has has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. See, just let that sink in for a while. If you're in Christ, that is, if you know Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then you already have everything you need for life and godliness. And Peter doesn't mean, you know, just physical life. He means eternal life. And his power, well, it's also been given to us, everything we need for godliness. That is, you already have all you need to live a holy, God-honoring, and pure life. You don't have to go hunting around for something else that needed to be added to your spiritual life. You are not now, if you believe in Christ, a second-class Christian. Now, you need to have no doubt about this, lest you be deceived. See, in your salvation, God has provided you with everything. Now, it might be true that some of us have never taken the time to discover what already is ours. You know, we're like the person whose bank account shows hundreds of millions of dollars, but since they've never checked with their bank to see the status of their account, they go on living in practical poverty, acting as if they don't have enough and looking for more. Don't you see? Peter says, look how spiritually rich you already are. 
You have the tools to live full of joy in the Holy Spirit. You have the tools to say no to sin at any point in time and yes to righteousness. You have the tools to use your spiritual gifts to serve others well and to glorify God. You have the tools for a full and rich intimacy with God. I could just go on and on. His divine power has already granted you those things. Yeah, but how does one access those riches? Well, let me use the illustration I've already used. You know, the riches are your bank account. You know, perhaps the problem with some of us that we live in spiritual poverty and that we haven't learned how to access the account or to use Peter's words, how to access the power that has been granted to us. And with that, Peter tells us how to access it. Notice the middle part of verse three again. This power that pertains to life in godliness is accessed through the knowledge of him who called us. So stop right there. Two things are now clamoring for our attention. I hope you see it. The knowledge of him, that is, the knowledge of the triune God. Second item that clamors for our attention is the word called. And if you think about it, you're going to see that Peter is communicating something very important to us. See, the point is this. I think Kelvin said it well. He said, Peter makes God the author of this knowledge because we never go to him except when we're called. Well, let me add something to that. We never want to learn more about God until God has called us to learn more. God calls us to himself, and then in consequence, we have a hunger that's ever deepening and a knowledge base that's ever broadening. Well, now, since God calls us to know him, here's the question. What does he want us to learn? Someone might respond, well, now, here's what we learn. We learn the attributes of God. We learn about everything from his love to his righteousness, to his mercy, his sovereignty. We learn of his holiness, his wrath against sin, his willingness to extend grace through his son. That's all true. See, when a man or woman is called, they do wish to know more about the God who called them. What's he like? What are his attributes? But I think Peter's saying more here. Look at the last part of verse 3. God has called us into the knowledge of him, says Peter, to his own glory and excellency. You know, both of those terms, glory and excellency, or glory and outstanding goodness, those terms tell us what we find so attractive about God. When we're called, we get a sense of the loveliness of God, of the loveliness of his character, of the loveliness of everything that he's done. See, before you came to Christ, you might have found, you know, the study of God to be interesting, but now you're overwhelmed with his excellence. You're thrilled at every thought of him. So let me give you an example of that. I remember a conversation I had with a woman who, at that time, had just surrendered her life to Christ as her Savior and Lord a mere few days earlier. She told me something marvelous happened on that day on her way to work. She said, I was on my usual route, but I I noticed the birds. They'd always been there, but it had never occurred to me that those birds were made by the same God who had now embraced me in his love. She said, those birds were not the same on that day. They were the handiwork of the one I now knew intimately. Yeah, that kind of a thing. Everything we need for life and godliness is available through the knowledge of God, the one we now find so fascinating and altogether lovely. That's says Peter. I'm still not yet done. Look at verse 4. Here, Peter is clarifying what he's already said. You know, in case you didn't get it, he says, listen up. This knowledge we have of God, which has been given to us, informs us that we have been granted great and precious promises. Oh, now, what is the nature of God's promises to us? And the answer has to be 
that these must be the promises that pertain to eternal life and godliness. That is, the promise that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have the guarantee of eternal life. See, every believer in Christ knows with certainty that it is eternal life that awaits us because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Christ's entire life is a promise for all who hope in him. But there is more. The great and precious promises also pertain to the life of holiness. Now that those promises pertaining to eternal life and godliness Through those promises, we become, says Peter, partakers of the divine nature. You know, now look, we don't become divine. We can't become God. We're human. He's God. But we can share in his holiness, in his purity, in his rejection of sin, in participating in everything that's pure and lovely. We're being made like Christ. We're sharing in the Father's nature. In that sense, we're being made holy. And then, of course, Peter gets very practical in case we're still missing the point. He says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So let's sum up. Peter is going to lead his readers to be careful, to be discerning about false teachers who want to deceive the church and destroy her from the inside out. And instead of jumping in by giving a list of major heresies of the day, the way that we might tend to do it today, he's directing readers to explore the nature of their faith. Our faith is not just about having the right ideas. It's about delighting in God and sharing in his passion for eternal life and holiness. Concentrate on that, says Peter. Concentrate on what you have as a believer. Desire God, and then you'll be ready to fight for what's holy and pure. Thanks, John, for your message today. You know, can I ask you, it doesn't make sense that we can live the life of a Christian and not know what the Bible actually says about being a follower of Jesus? It is a strange phenomenon that's happened in our day and that we have, i say this gently, but we've substituted the sinner's prayer for a disciple of Jesus. Yeah, of course, we need to uh, confess our sins and invite Christ to be our Savior and Lord. We need to surrender our life into his hands. But the test of that is going to be whether or not I have taken up my cross and followed Jesus for the course of a lifetime. Of course, the Holy Spirit is going to help me, and of course, I'm going to fail and need to repent and come back to Christ. But the reality is, I must never let go of this, that I have become a slave of Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, I'm called to obedience to him for the rest of my life. That's good news. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Danger From Within, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Back to the Bible Canada blog page has recently seen some exciting changes. So in addition to Dr. John's blogs, We'll now be having regular monthly blog contributions from special ministry guests and friends of the ministry. So make sure to receive the Back to the Bible Canada, Dr. John and Company blogs each week by signing up for our audio mail or download our Back to the Bible Canada app or just visit backtothebible.ca every week. Timely, interesting, biblical perspective sharing thoughts about faith, life and culture with the Bible at the very center. To check out the Dr. John and Company blog page, 
visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 for more information. And remember to ask for your free ministry resource, 10 Questions About Money Matters, during the month of August.